is a rockin' in the weary land, weary land. My God is a rock in the weary land, shelter and the mighty storm. Where you go away, you long tongue liar. Oh, yeah. want you in this band. But the true bone soul of the voice in the blood of the land. For my God is the rock in the weary land. Weary land, in the weary land. My God is the rock in the weary land. Children in the time I was gone. Well, do stop and let me tell you about the chapter one. The Lord was quick. Let me tell you about the chapter two. Let me tell you, if you uh, if you sit and listen to these too much, they just uh, these these old spirituals. They just like have a way of working into your bones. And I'm out on a run, and that that song is just over and over and over in my head. And you can imagine those um, who have uh, who have suffered a lot uh, using this to speak hope over and over and over again uh, to their brothers and sisters. We're, uh, I, I want you just to think for a second as we get into this about the imagery of a song that says, my God is a rock in a weary land. Uh, how many of you have ever walked across a desert in, in need of shelter and found a giant rock that's given it to you? All right, so not particularly relevant uh, life experience there. Me either, um, honestly. Uh, but, uh, but here, you take a, take a look. Thanks, Brian. Um, this, is, this is actually in California. But, uh, but, but the imagery here is, uh, it actually comes directly out of, um, out of two things. Uh, one is a little, a little passage in Isaiah 32 that talks about a weary land um, that, uh, that is sometimes translated, that was Old King James used the word weary land, but, but a deserted land, a thirsty land, a desperate land. And so this idea of a rock being in, in a, a desolate place where the sun can beat down on you and there is no shade or where a storm can come up and you have no protection from the, the rain or the lightning um, or the flash floods and a, and a, a, a rock that, that is sturdy in this space creates a haven for you, right? And so, so uh, the, the song here that this, and, and we'll remind you if you weren't around last week of how we're springboarding from some of the slave spirituals to be teachers to us about hope. Um, during this Advent season, but, um, but, but uh, in, in Psalm 71, this, uh, this imagery is right there, and it's throughout all of the Old Testament. Be my rock of refuge. This is the psalmist talking to which I can always go, and he's, and he's talking to uh, about God, about his relationship with God. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock. Now, now we don't really necessarily have the same kind of an imagery because of the places that we live and, the, and the, the culture and the world and the civilization that we are currently in. However, this imagery still sticks with us, right? Like you might, I might say a phrase like, she's my rock, right? Talking about my spouse, talking about Bethany, like, and, and, or maybe a family member, you might say that, or, or a, a best friend. And, and what you mean 
usually, if you say something like, that person is my rock, that you mean that there's something about them that is constant when everything else feels like it might be in chaos, right? Steadiness when everything else is shaking. Um, safety in the midst of, of fear. Um, it's, it's a presence that you can trust in. It's not going anywhere, right? It's going to be there um, in all weather, still available, everything like that. So we are leaning into this, this, this macro theme, even though each week we lean into a, a smaller theme and our hope candle here um, every year because of, I think, where the drafts are. This is our timer for sermon length, the, the hope candle. And everybody's always like, well, he better get done before that thing starts fire. So uh, try not to get distracted about that. We are aware of it. <clears throat> um, but we're talking about hope every week during this season because it seems like hope is kind of a challenging thing to grasp in our world these days. And so we're looking at it through different lenses. And last week, we talked about hope speaking to our despair. The hope of, of God's coming to rescue us speaks to ultimate despair. It's a big theme, all right? But, but hope does a lot of, the hope of, of Jesus coming accomplishes many, many different things. And, and so we're talking about how it's stronger than despair. It's stronger than isolation. It's stronger than exhaustion. It's stronger than cynicism. So this week we're leaning into the fact that, that the hope of Jesus coming, Jesus is being with us, is stronger than the isolation that we might face. And of course we're um, we're being taught and inspired, like I said, by some of the old slave spirituals during this season of Advent, asking the unnamed ones who have suffered, suffered far more than most of us can even comprehend, and persevered with God. We're asking them to be our instructors. We're, we're, we're trying to learn from a faith that was so robust, and, and heroes that still go unnamed, who wrote these songs and sang these songs that have persevered and that have shaped a people and hopefully shape us as a people as well. And so, uh, so this week, this week we're going to think about what it means to see God as a rock, but even to move beyond that into what Jesus specifically was uh, when he came into the world about God being present with us. So the, this idea of God being present, if we actually grasp it, I believe that it's uh, it's not intangible. I think it's actually one of the most transformational elements of our faith and certainly of the Christmas story that we have. But here's the cool thing. The movement in the Old Testament of God being present has always been there, right? So, so like, the idea of God being with us, kind of part of the story from the beginning. Like, take a look at some of these passages. In Isaiah, fear not, God has promised through the, Isaiah, or through the, the prophet Isaiah, he's promising his people, fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. So there's this imagery here of, you know, I'm, I'm right here. I'm, I am with you. So you can walk without fear. Fear also, by the way, is the shadow, the shadow element of the presence of God that we see in the scriptures. It only casts out fear. And then in Psalm, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is from one of the most famous passages, I will fear not because you are with me. I'll fear no evil because you're with me. So, so the psalmist had this feeling, David, when he's writing this famous 23rd Psalm, had this feeling, you're with me, God. The promise of Isaiah, God's going to be with you, right? Over and over again. In Deuteronomy, a people who are in the midst of, of an embattled world with warring peoples constantly, be strong and courageous, God says. Don't fear or be in dread of your enemy, them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. 
He will not leave you or forsake you. So with, 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 God's presence is always there. All right? So God's presence is always there. So that's great. It's nice and consistent throughout the whole thing. So what's the deal then with the story of Jesus? Because when Jesus shows up, what we see is we see a fundamental shift in all of belief system within the Judeo-Christian faith. All right? What, what you see when Jesus shows up is, and we'll put, let's put this up for Matthew. So this is after um, Joseph's freaking out, right? Uh, he's just found out that Mary, Mary says she's pregnant. He's like, this, this just doesn't compute, but I want to... Now, now, we don't give Joseph enough credit, by the way, for having character here. Because he could have just left her and gone and said whatever he wanted to say. But, but it said that his desire was to divorce her quietly, all right? So to move on um, and divorce this, this engagement that they had. They were not married at the time, but they were promised. And so, so to move away from that and, um, and try to at least as much as he could save her dignity as well. But so he's in the midst of this hard decision-making process about what do I do, and he's, dis- he's despairing and everything. And, uh, and the angel comes, he says, stop freaking out. Um, it's, it's God's baby, which does not necessarily have the impact of stop freaking out, um, because if I was Joseph, I'd be like, it's not helpful. Now I'm freaking out more, and I'm so, I'm, I'm confused. I'm terrified. There is not a lot of joy and excitement in this story, to be really honest. Like, somebody else, please. Uh, so, but anyways, in the midst of this, the angel comes to him, and, he t- and the angel says, be at peace. Go ahead, take her as your wife. You're going to see God do some beautiful things. And, and he says, and he, and he says, and give him the name Jesus, which the name Jesus, New Testament name, Hebrew, or, or Greek name for the same name as Joshua. So Jesus' name was Joshua. Does that, like, mess with any of you? Same name. Um, so Joshua means the rescuer. So, so Jesus, he says, you're supposed to name him Jesus. All right, Joseph? Name this guy Jesus. He's going to save people. He's going to rescue people. So that happens, but right after that moment, we get like a little parenthetical statement, you know, like you take a step back from, from the situation, and it says, this took place in order, okay? So we're told by, by Matthew that this took place in order to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, talking about Isaiah, a long time ago. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Now this week, we're not getting into dual prophecies. Dual prophecies is what we see a lot of in the Old Testament, and um, what that means is that when Isaiah said that, there was a specific time and place of a specific kid that was being born in a specific city <laughs> that was being talked about uh, in the midst of two kingdoms clashing. And so Isaiah was talking about that, and it was, so, so that, that statement was fulfilled at that time. But what happens is that we see secondary prophecies all the time in the, in the scriptures. And what that means is that New Testament writers, they look at the story that's unfolding and they say, oh my goodness, this happened here specifically but that passage is now able to be applied in a massive way. The promise in its fullness is becoming fulfilled here, ultimately in Jesus, okay? And so, so, so this is the full fulfillment of something that, by the way, in Isaiah's time would have made sense to them, but now makes sense in the global scale in a new way. So that, I wasn't supposed to talk about that. Uh, but so the point here, though, that I love is when he tells him to calm down and we get the backstory is that the reason that all this was unfolding, it was to fulfill ultimately this promise of Isaiah that says that the virgin is going to give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Two things about this is so cool. Number one, what Emmanuel means is, oh, yeah, we don't even have to do it. The, the author did it for us. Thank you, Matthew. 
It means God with us. Emmanuel, the name of the... The name Emmanuel means God with us, and this is what they will call him. But the cool thing is that it says they will call him that. So you've got two elements. Number one, Jesus is going to be known as God with us, but God's always been with us. That's the Old Testament story, right? So what's so new and different about saying that God is with us? So that's one question. But the second thing is that it's so cool because Joseph says, or Joseph is told you're supposed to name him Jesus. But then he says, by the way, they will call him. And all I can think about there is that the people's experience with this man will be so compelling that they will have no other way to describe him but to call him God with us. It's a given name, not from, the, from Joseph as father, but from those who are going to interact with him. I just love it. It's just like a little tidbit. They will call him, not, and you will call him God with us. They, when they see him, when they feel the love that he is going to bring, when they interact with this Jesus, they are going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. It's, it's such, such cool language. But anyways, God's new name in Jesus, Emmanuel, is, is the first time that, that we see this kind of a shift of like, don't worry, God is coming to you, but we've heard God is with you, God is going to be with you, God is right beside me, so why why is it so, such a big deal that Jesus is called God with us? Um, what's, what's, the, what's the deal? So Jesus enters, enters stage left, and teaches us what's right. Um, uh, so Jesus enters. I'm sorry, that's so bad. That was really, really bad. That's like my 14-year-olds are not, not going to be happy when they hear about this stuff. So, so Jesus comes. And Jesus begins to interact with people in such a way that is transformative. They meet Jesus, and they drop their old lives. They meet Jesus, and they start to believe that who God is is different than what they thought. They meet Jesus, and they start to put away things that they had done that pulled them away from relationships with God and with others. They meet Jesus, and they begin to learn that it's possible to walk in grace. They meet Jesus, and barriers of Jewish-Gentile racism begin to get dropped. That takes some time. But they meet Jesus, and everything changes. And, and when they begin to feel the miracles of Jesus, when they are healed by Jesus, they begin to see that he's not just a prophet, but that he actually is maybe one with God. And, and so the, the difference that I think is so significant is that when we would say God with us in the past, it was kind of like, like there's like God's going to be powerful like when we try to do something, and so good, God was with us because it, it worked out. But all of a sudden, to say that God was with us meant that I could look at God. I could, like, actually talk to God. That God was accessible in a completely new way. And it changes how even the people in the New Testament then begin to talk about, about this moment. So the witness of the New Testament reflects this. Take a look at these passages. Look in John 1. No one has ever seen God. Like, wait a second. Wait a second, John. I thought, like, we, I thought like all throughout the Old Testament people see God and see God at work. But, but it was so fundamentally different that the way that the writer of the, the Gospel of John describes it, the way that John describes it, he says no one's even ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, right, and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So, so in, in terms of how John describes it, no one's ever seen God before, but now we have God with us 
So it has been a fundamental shift. And then look at the writer of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You could just as easily change the words there in Hebrew and say, in the past, God was present to our ancestors, right? Like God spoke, God was present to our ancestors through the prophets. But in these last days, he has become present to us by his son. God's way of relating to people has changed. There was a but now. See, up until this point, there was still layers of separation, right? You could know and promise and encourage each other that God was always with you. But you couldn't like sit down at an evening campfire and like compare blisters from your afternoon journey with God. And I think the more high and holy we think Jesus was, the more difficult it is to understand the beauty of what God with us actually means. You know, we get the, we get the, the, the greatest hits here. But in the midst of everything else, God was still there in Jesus. Like every night after the story ended, Jesus is still hanging out. You know, banquet night wasn't every night, right? Like there was just a lot of hanging out around the fire. Who's cooking tonight? Really? Does it have to be me? All right. Yes, Peter. You talk too much today. You need to do something else. So like, so all of this, all of this, these moments of, of beginning to understand that there is a fundamental shift begins to change the perspective of how people think about God, how people know God. God is with us now. The difference is, and the interesting thing, is that we sometimes, and, and it's hard for us because we weren't there. And I think all of us feel that. All of us feel that loss a little bit. Like we believe the spirit of Jesus being given, and I, I'm going to go back to that in just a minute, but like we all feel the loss of like how amazing would that have been? Like I believe God's with me, but like it would have been awesome to actually sit beside Jesus, to actually see those miracles, those healings, to feel that love in that way. Um, and, and I get that, but the thing that we tend to do, maybe as an outflow of that, maybe just because um, we don't quite understand the, the power of, of Jesus coming, is that we go back to the pre-Emmanuel attitudes. We go back to these pre-Emmanuel attitudes of, of God being very, almost all mystery and pretty unknowable. And God may be showing up at certain times and places, which is what we see happen in the, in, to the prophets. God showed up at certain times and places in dynamic ways. Abraham, but then it was like 22 years till he talked to Abraham again. So like big gaps, right? And, 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 and we kind of think, well, yeah, God will hopefully show up again in new ways. But like, I know, I know God's with me, but, you know, we, we just, we have these pre-Emmanuel attitudes sometimes that don't actually change our moment-to-moment realities. When Jesus resurrects, spoiler, and, and speaks to his disciples in the book of John, in, 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 um, in John 20, 22, he breathes on them. After he resurrects, he, 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 he breathes on them and he says, receive my spirit. And he talks about his spirit being given in a way that was brand new. That his spirit is now being given to all of his disciples in a unique way then. But then the Holy Spirit that he said he was going to send begins to descend on everyone who wants to follow Jesus. And the spirit of God, which was uh, only available for the big ones, 
the big prophets, the big, the big movers and shakers in, in the Old Testament stories, all of a sudden they're available to even, even the non-Jewish unclean Gentiles if they want it. And so all of a sudden the presence of God becomes available to every single person. And, and there's energy there and there's power and there's beauty and there's freedom. And so, so what we see is the early church living with this profound conviction and assurance that no matter what, Jesus is available, or Jesus is with them and his spirit is available. There is no question. And so they step out in faith in new ways, with new energy and new courage, right? They're able to persevere through deep struggles. And interestingly, while we talk very much in, in this church about how doubt is a part of the faith journey and welcomed and not something to ignore— but I do think it's interesting that in the New Testament, we see this rock-solid conviction that Jesus is always with us. In the Psalms, sometimes we see, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, is one of the, there's a song. You know, did anybody grow up singing that song? Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And so, so that, um, interestingly, one of my mentors, uh, pastor when I was a teenager, he was like, yeah, we, we, we will not sing that song because it's not a valid prayer anymore. Don't take your spirit from me, Lord. It's not a risk. <laughs> like, like we're on this side. We will never be cast away from the presence. God's presence doesn't come and go from us anymore. That's the change of Jesus giving his spirit, breathing on his people, which the word for breath is the same word for spirit in, in Hebrew. So originally to give, for him to breathe, he was saying, receive my spirit. And so there's this beauty that there is nothing that can remove us from the Spirit of God. So we don't see those same um, elements of like, where have you gone, God, in the New Testament church? Now, granted, we still have those feelings. They're valid. But, we, but, but it's important for us to see that there was a shift in between the, the New Testament church when they, when they met Jesus. It's, it's really cool. It's beautiful. It's interesting. And so, um, so yeah, it, this, to, to lean into that is that what, what this means is that when we as people truly grasp that Jesus is God and Jesus is God who has come to us then and now that God has come to us and Jesus promising to be with us always then it shifts our understanding of reality and it does shift our day-to-day experience and why is this so important it's so important because isolation is one of the most common human experiences that we have today Uh, and Jesus has something to say about it to us especially as we, as we enact this drama once again during the month of December of waiting for the presence of Jesus, even though we know it's here. It, it matters that we bring our energy and attention back to this. Jesus has something to say about our waiting in isolation. Um, and, and so what are some of the sp- experiences of isolation? Let's just talk about uh, three <clears throat> and try to keep this moving in a practical direction. The one experience of isolation, the thing that we think, right, is that, um, and the promise is God is with us when we feel all alone. Right? This is, the, this is one of the, the biggest areas that isolation takes root in us. We, we feel like we are all alone. And sometimes it's, we feel like we're all alone because circumstances have isolated us. We've been hurt. Something, something bad happened. Um, life took a turn that we didn't expect. We lost a job, whatever. Um, and, and we just feel so, or, or maybe you're in a leadership position, and COVID was so tough, and you can't recover, and it just feels like you're so alone. Um, You know, 
I, I think it's fascinating, and sometimes <clears throat> this comes as a result of feeling like we've, we've made a mistake or we've messed up. There's so many things that make us feel like we, I am all alone. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that when we look at Jesus, that we note that Jesus went to the people who specifically were the most isolated. And what that looks like is the disabled and the lepers in the scriptures and the Gentiles. But he touches the untouchable people. He goes out, he goes across lakes, leaving the land of Nazareth and Judea, and he goes across to different lands and he touches people who are living in isolation, who feel all alone. Sometimes they're all alone in the middle of a crowd, like the bleeding woman. Sometimes they're all alone living in caves like the leper. But what he does is he goes and he says, I'm accessible to you and I'm, good. I'm even coming in your, your direction. And so we see this God over and over again in Jesus who practices profound acts of presence to those who have been feeling isolated. And, and maybe, maybe, like I said, if it's pain that we've been through or pain that we've caused, we isolate ourselves. And, and so we're, we're out here because of self-protection or because of fears or because of guilt, whatever, and we, and we remove ourselves. It's not something that's, that is a society thing. It's that we have, we have just tried to, to hold this protection. And I think it's fascinating that even that the grace of God is so present in the scriptures. Um, again, I keep going post-resurrection moments, but when Peter denies Jesus, and then the next time that we find out that Jesus appears in the room, Peter's not there. He's removed himself from the disciples. He's left all of them. So full of shame, so full of guilt, just can't even go there. Jesus eventually seeks him out when he's on the shore. Jesus goes out and finds him, finds this guy who has self-isolated. And he says, hey, let's have, some, let's have some breakfast. And they eat fish cooking on the beach after this hall that Jesus leads them to. And, and when they, they do that, Jesus then reinstates Peter by asking about the love that Peter has and, and working Peter over on this and saying, I haven't stopped believing in you. You're going to go feed my sheep even though you think that you're outside of the possibility of me still working with you. So Jesus goes and he pursues. You can talk about that maybe when Easter time comes around. We'll look at that more deeply. But there's so much beauty when we think that we're all alone with a God who comes and pursues us and is willing to constantly be present with us when we feel like we're on the outside. Also, when we think no one understands, I think this is really interesting. When we think nobody understands, this is, this is one of the other elements of isolation. So the first thing is just the feeling of being alone. The second is that nobody can get my struggle. Nobody knows the struggle, the trouble I've seen, right? Nobody understands. And, uh, and what we get is this beautiful image of a God who doesn't just stand there loving us from above, but enters in. And so the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact that Jesus places himself as a high priest, both the, um, the one who goes between God and humanity, but also the one who is the same sacrifice that they offer. Uh, it's really profound. It's great writing in Hebrews. But he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So in other words, we have a God who so fully entered into the reality of humanity that like, the, the best way to summarize this for our time is that God actually gets it. 
So when we think we constantly are disappointing God because we make mistakes or we screw up, we often push aside that, that God can't possibly understand our humanity. God can't understand how hard I've been trying, how much I've been working. God can't understand how frustrating my kids are. So that's why I said that thing. Like, this is this not a realistic view of the God of the universe who entered into humanity. God does understand. That doesn't mean that it's like all fine and good and we can just keep, keep on hurting people if that's what we're doing, but it means God understands the complexity of the journey and there is always grace and we're always invited to walk through, but we always have somebody who gets it. Always have somebody that gets it. It's transformative. Um, and then I think there's one, one more interesting way, um, one more interesting way that, that we uh, experience isolation. And this is a little bit different. And this is that, that we often become isolated when we think that it all depends on us. We, we get really isolated when we think that the pressure is on for me to accomplish all the good in the world that needs to be done, for me to hold the family together and manage it perfectly, for me to, um, you know, give the, the outward appearance that I want to give, you know, all the time so that people are, are impressed. Whatever the case is, but we have this crippling pressure that we think it all depends on us so often, and it's truly isolating, and it truly limits us from understanding that God is with us. And, um, one of the things, I don't know if you've been able to, to stay up um, with, with everything uh, related to our Advent readings, but this past week, my wife Bethany um, wrote, I think on Thursday maybe, something like that, and she reflected on a passage from John chapter 6, and John's having a conversation with Philip, and this is right before the feeding of the 5,000. And, and uh, they're, they're out there, everybody's tired, and Jesus looks up and sees this, all these people, and he says to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I'm sure Philip appreciated that. Um, but Philip goes, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And so, so Jesus says, what are, where shall we buy bread? He uses we. Where are we going to solve? How are we going to solve this problem? And Philip just completely ignores everything that he's seen from Jesus up until this point, and comes up with an answer that is completely in line with the fact that maybe just he and the disciples were hanging out and Jesus wasn't even there. His answer is completely rational. Well, I mean, you'd have to do this, this. Jesus says, Where, how are we going to solve this problem, Philip? What should we do? And Philip gets out the spreadsheet. And he says, well, um, I mean, like, I'm doing the math and I've only got uh, a couple shekels, and you know, and, and we're going to go through this, and and it's all about me doing. Well, I I can't figure this out. I could work forever and not figure it out. And this is this is all Bethany. Um, this is this was this this image, and what she pointed out that Philip misses is the fact that Jesus is standing right beside him, and he's been through it with Jesus, but all he can think about is I couldn't even possibly do this. He feels all the pressure. Jesus says, "What are we going to do?" And Philip feels this crushing pressure about, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to solve this problem? And so, so of course, the, the answer that maybe Jesus is looking for, and seriously, I think Philip probably gave him an earful later, because Philip's like, I'm just trying to learn here, Jesus. I'm trying to do my best. Like, I, I do not appreciate being an object lesson for the rest of the disciples. It's just not, I mean, I don't know how many of you 
have been an object lesson, probably many of you because you've been a part of this church for a while. I just don't use your names. Uh, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm really just kidding. No, I'm not, actually. But it, it's, not, it's not ever critical. It's not ever critical, but it's, uh, it's yeah. No, it's there. Um, <laughs> illustrations to build our faith and love in Jesus. But, um, but so, so in the midst of this, there's just this experience of Philip assuming the same thing that we do, and that is that it all depends on us. And sometimes it's even the mentality that when the mentality changes, the eyesight changes. When the mentality shifts that it's not all on me, all of a sudden it relaxed. Do you know how when there's pressure, creativity just goes down the drain? When we feel like, I mean, you can accomplish things on a deadline, but thinking about the world in new ways, creatively solving problems, deadlines are like putting, you know, water on a fire. And so, so when we start to, to shift how we understand God being with us and that we understand the pressure is off and that God understands when we fail and there's grace to begin again and that, that we do not have it all on ourselves to accomplish things, that we actually have been given this empowering spirit of Christ that Jesus is truly with us as we are seeking to do, to do good, it does a couple things that I think are amazing. One is that the pressure to, to perform is released, right? And that's a big deal. We know this, right? It's a big deal when the pressure to perform is actually finally released. But the second thing is that our love and our ability to do good becomes more powerful. <laughs> it becomes enlarged because it's not just our strength, it's Jesus working with us. So, so there's this beautiful thing that happens. Um, and I, I just... I, I can't help but think that we truly don't often act like the spirit of Jesus and the energy and the love of Jesus is available to us at any moment. I was, uh, on Wednesday night maybe, I was setting up lights in our backyard. Um, I think I have a picture of that. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I tried my best. It wasn't really in, intended to like wow everyone. Like, oh yeah, you put some on the back fence there. But I did, I did wrap it around that one bush really nicely. It's a weed. I'm going to cut it down as soon as we're done with this. But, um, but I was, what I did is it's like a 200-foot LED thing that you can buy cheap off of Amazon, which I thought was great until I realized that a 200-foot rope that you recoil and uncoil every year is just like a, like a Christmas nightmare. But anyway, so I, because I'm really, really smart like this, I used an old yogurt container, and I wrapped the whole thing around this yogurt container um, to store it last year. So I got it done, and I'm setting it up by slowly unrolling this 200-foot thing of LED lights, and it's getting darker, and my hands are getting colder. And I, I got all the way about to, to here, um, to the, the last corner of the yard where I have this, we have this maple, this Japanese maple, and I was going to like wrap it around. And by this point, the, the yogurt thing is gone. It's now around my arm, right? So I'm doing this to undo the coil and then trying to stick my arm through. And I can't see anymore. And it's, it's at this point, you're in the final 30 feet and the whole thing is tangled. Like I just have a ball now. It started as a nice coil, but I've just totally got a ball. And I'm standing there just doing this in the dark because that's what you do. You just slowly pull it apart, and you see where there's a loose thing, right? And you just keep going. So I'm just sitting there in the dark, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, I did think about going to get my, my cell phone flashlight, but it was inside, and I was lazy, and I was kind of annoyed, and I was trying to do it myself, and I didn't want Bethany to know that I was 
holding a giant messed up thing of lights, you know, and then she'd be like, maybe you should have wrapped it in a better system. And I'd be like, no, that's not good for our marriage. So anyways, <laughs> so I'm sitting there and all of a sudden it dawns on me that I'm holding light, but it's not on. Like I've got the, I've got the extension cord gone. It's, it's right there to just plug that sucker right in. It was all set up. And so I'm like, oh. So I walk over and hit the button, and pff, this whole thing lights up. And then I'm like, oh, now I can, I can see where that string goes. And I just pull this out, pull that out. About 90 seconds later, it's this nice, long string, and I can finish up. But the, the, the point is that I'm sitting there trying to do all of this, having no, no even awareness of the fact that right in my hands is light and power. It's not my light and power, but it's right in my hands and it's available to help me solve problems in new ways. It's available to help me bring light into the world in new ways. It's available to help me move from this constant frustration into a different reality. And so, so we can talk all we want about how, how heady the idea of God with us is or, or how existential it is. But the reality is that when we have a conviction, when we walk through life with the awareness that we are not alone, that God is with us, that God has grace for us, that God isn't going anywhere, that God is a rock in a weary land, then when we are exhausted and when we are frustrated and when we run into problems, we all of a sudden have a different perspective that we can take when we realize the pressure's off and we're not alone. And it does change our day-to-day realities. It changed the New Testament people's day-to-day realities. And I believe it will change ours too. So the awareness of God coming. Oh, oh, you know what? Want to know what's really cool? That song that we started with? My God is a rock in a weary land. Over the, the generations and decades, that song shifted a little bit. So if you look at a lot of um, gospel choirs and other groups who perform it, um, I don't know when, but at some point, my God got replaced with Jesus. And so if you, if you search for it on Google, my God is a rock in a weary land, about three quarters of the, of the hits that you're going to get are Jesus is a rock in a weary land. And so throughout, for whatever reason, throughout the course of time, the, the general generality of God moved toward the specificity of Jesus. And my God is a rock in a weary land is a wonderful statement and a wonderful song. But I think it's very fascinating, given what we're talking about, that over the years it moved toward the specificity that Jesus is my rock in a weary land. Jesus is a rock in a weary land. There's something tangible about it. It's not, a, it's not a broad concept. I can picture the way Jesus taught me to live. I can picture the way that Jesus loved people and know that that's the kind of love that's coming toward me. I can, I can understand this, and I've been given the gift of, of the Spirit of God. So I don't want you to get too theoretical, friends. Our awareness of Jesus coming to be with us does counteract what isolation and pressure does to us. It does help us walk through life with peace and hope. It does open up the world to be seen with fresh creativity because the pressure is no longer there. So there's no formula for cultivating a life of living present with Jesus. But as we learn to sit with Jesus, leaning into the scriptures, leaning into silence, leaning into reflection, then we will be empowered to love more boldly, right? Um, Because we're not alone and the pressure's off. And in our struggles, God's peace will give us something that goes beyond our circumstances because Jesus is with us in the midst. Uh, I, I mentioned that John 20, 22 passage earlier where Jesus breathes on him, but the first thing Jesus, on the disciples, but the first thing Jesus says is, my peace I give you. And then he breathes on them. So the idea of, of we, this is the peace week as we lean into these elements of we find hope in the fact 
that the presence of God sets us at peace. Um, and I think that's really, really beautiful. These are the gifts that Jesus wants to give us with his presence. Let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, we uh, don't always know how to handle a statement like God is with us beyond it becoming kind of tokenish. So I pray that your, your spirit, in, in a mystical way, would be a reminder to us today in the deep places that we are actually not alone, that that would be a sense that we truly can have. But even if we don't have that, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that the story of your coming would be enough for us to just hold on to that hope of your presence, even if it's hard to grasp right now, and that it would change how we live, and that we would find rest and peace in you. Amen.